Okay, go. <laughs> before I, uh, before the, at, when this week rolled around, I was getting very excited about coming back, and I thought, where do I want to start? I've been gone for two months. Much of that time I was in France, at, uh, in, in the south of France where I live. Uh, two weeks of that time I was in Berlin going to the opera. Uh, for people who are Wagner aficionados, I'll tell you a little bit about that. You really, it was very interesting to me. I, I want to tell you, I don't want to digress long about it, but it, had, it was very curious to me. I would say to people, they'd say, where are you going? I'd say, I'm going to Berlin. Oh, why? I'm going to see uh, a, a very unusual planetary convergence. There are uh, seven Wagnerian operas in ten days. And some people said, wow. And other people said, ah, why would you do that? And I was, what I was surprised about is that the people who were so, uh, immediate about, yuck, why would you want to do that? Who are otherwise cultured and refined and well-mannered and thoughtful, you know? If somebody told me they were going to do something that didn't personally appeal to me, I don't know if I'd do that, you know. I, I, I think I might say, oh, really, you know, why are you doing that? What what interests you about that? I hardly knew you were that interested in that. Do tell me about it. I wouldn't say, ah, oh, you know. <laughs> it, it makes a visceral response in people. And uh, for a variety of reasons, it turns out. But that was very interesting to find out. Apart from that, though, there are lots of things to tell about the people who do go. And truth to tell, it's extremely hard to get tickets. You, the people who know, for instance, that there will be uh, a perf- a, uh, the four opera ring series in Melbourne this fall in October have had their tickets for a year. They're sold out way in advance. It was hard to get the tickets that I got. So I'll tell you more about the, the Wagner. I went because I like it. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people go over and over again because they don't say, I saw it once. I saw it once. I have a good friend who did not say, ach, who uh, has been following the Grateful Dead. He's now 78 years old. 70, no, I'm, yeah, I'm 76. He's 78. He's been following the Grateful Dead for 50 years. He goes all over the place to dead concerts. He says, you know, I have people i have no problem about people about going to 10 concerts in one week and going to seattle to do it they don't it's never the same it's always different actually one of the people in the wagner circle of emails that i get has a um, her email address is ringhead uh, <laughs> ringhead at yahoo.com or something so it's like that, and they don't much mind if it's a really superlative. They love it if it's great, but if it's not great, it was in Melbourne or it will be in Beijing, and there's a whole. It's an event. It's an event. Not every event can be great. It was really. Uh, I, I keep thinking, what's the allure of those operas? And I, you know, we people have written volumes about it, but one of them, which is appropriate to talk about in terms of Dharma is the the absolute futility of greed and lust. And it's a story of greed and lust and how when greed and lust prevail, uh, everything collapses. And uh, Valhalla, the palace of the gods, 
in the fourth of the operas crashes into destruction because everyone has given rein to their greed and their lust. And Wagner studied uh, Buddhism. He was very interested in it. I'm now reading about that and learning about it, so I'll tell you more about that. But uh, one of my friends, maybe I'll read this to you now. One of my friends, who's a practitioner here and part of the uh, dedicated practitioner program, now in the teacher training program, who also enjoys Wagner, sent me um, uh, uh, the last lines of the version of the fourth opera that didn't end up the ones that we hear. There, are, So the scholars know that they were very... Wagner didn't know how to end, apparently. <laughs> fooled around with a different... There's a lot of different endings... Not fooled around. He worked with a lot of different <laughs> endings to say what he wanted to say. And the end of the opera, for those of you who might not know is that Brunhilde, who's a main character and the daughter of Wotan, who's the king of the gods, gallops with her horse uh, into an abyss and to her death and into the flames of the crashing Valhalla, but uh, has learned by that time that greed and lust and uh, retribution don't work. And... uh, so presumably this is what she says, that I am free from rebirth forever. Know ye how I came to this blessed end of all that is and shall be? Deepest suffering of woeful love opened my eyes. I saw the world end. So I think that... um, the last lines of the Metta Sutta... By not holding to fixed views of pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. What I read into that end of uh, Brunhilde's final statement is I've seen that this end with with its attachments uh, ends in woeful suffering, and so I'm finished with it. Uh, I don't know that that's what Wagner meant. Sounds like that. Maybe because my friend who sent it to me is more of a scholar than I and knows it for sure. But what I thought was the note that I wanted to start with, which ties together those... Uh, that theme of getting caught in greed and lust and really the imperative to have things your own way when they aren't that way, they're the way they are, is really the crux of the Buddha's teaching about the cause of suffering. Uh, in, in, tra- in traditional texts, the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is desire, lust. It's actually in Pali, it's tanha, which is craving, which is really a serious word, craving. Which is not just I like that, but craving means the mind can't let go of the desire to have it. And I think for myself, what I've been thinking about in recent years is that that it, the desire to have it, which frequently gets 
mixed up with sensual desires. I, I think it's the desire to have anything that isn't. It's the tension in the mind that needs to have things different from the way they are. That they can't be different from the way they are because they're the way they are. That one of the three characteristics of understanding that the Buddha talked about was understanding contingency and interrelationship. That everything is contingent on everything else. Things happen because other things happen. I think that I th- I thought about it this this these last few months so much in terms of trying to find a culprit. This wasn't where I meant to begin, but I'm, here I am. Mm-hmm. Trying to find a culprit to things and you say, well, this person was the fault or that person was the fault. But really what the Buddha said and what I began to see in a in several situations was it's very hard to find the fault. This wouldn't have happened if that happened, that hadn't happened, and that wouldn't have happened if that hadn't happened. I read a book by Eric Larson. That's a good example of it. It's called Isaac's Storm. And it was the second book I read by Eric Larson in these last two months. I find him a really compelling historian to read. It's called Isaac's Storm. The first book I read was called In the Garden of the Beasts. Garden of the Beasts is the tear garden. Anybody read that? Yeah, it's really an astounding book. I like the writings. I found it so compelling. I read Isaac's Storm. Isaac's Storm is the easier one to talk about. There was a storm in Galveston, Texas. There was a hurricane um, in Galveston, Texas in the fall of the year 1900. And 6,000 people were killed that could have been evacuated had they had proper... Notice Galveston is, in a, well, I, I now know the geography of Galveston quite well from having read that book. But Galveston got not only flooded, but flooded by really cyclone waves that washed away great neighborhoods of people. And uh, in reading the book, as he builds it up, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And meantime, in the South Pacific, this was happening. And meantime, in Washington, someone in the Signal Corps, higher up, who didn't like not having more power in Washington, took some more power away from some of the local reporting stations in the Caribbean so that there were less notifications coming in on time. And -and so-and-so had it in for somebody else who wasn't at their post at a certain time and build it up, and then you see that that storm came, even though the methods of weather forecasting were not like now where we have radar and, and, and weather satellites, they still could have had more warning and gotten people out of Galveston, but they didn't. And it wasn't any one person's fault. It was a lot of people's faults. It was also the fault of knowing, not knowing that the signals that they were getting from the waves and the winds were different from those that had ever been seen before. So partly things that people didn't know, partly things that people couldn't have helped, partly things that people could have helped if they had had more people at more outposts sending more messages along the way. And as you read that book, And you know what happened in Galveston as you're reading it and then they tell you one more fact and one more fact 
and one more fact may tell you so and so was relieved of his post in Cuba at that weather station or this happened and you know what's going to happen and you get the sense of foreboding is like building the the myriad um, causes for that terrific storm and it had to come together in just that way but then when you think about it it wasn't any one person's fault it was everything's fault and it was the biggest storm of its kind that had ever happened the same is true of Eric Larson's other book um in the Garden of the Beasts, which is uh, the year of 1933 to 1934, where uh, James Dodd, I think his name was, what was his name? James Dodd? James, James Dodd. I write so little then I can't read my own writing. Anyway, I'm sure that's James Dodd. William Dodd, I'm so sure it's James Dodd, it's William Dodd. Um, William Dodd, a really peaceful um, man, so a historian from the University of Chicago, gets appointed by Franklin Roosevelt to be the ambassador to Berlin. And he goes to Berlin with every intention of trying to be a coordinator of peaceful relationships. And, among, and is be, slowly and slowly uh, disabused of any idea that that any kind of peaceful reconciliation is going to be able to happen and uh, is constrained, among other things, by uh, the power of the American bankers who had tremendous loans out into Germany uh, and wanted their loans returned and therefore did not want to risk losing their money by cutting off relationships with Germany which might have happened had uh, the president taken a more strong stance against Hitler in the early days of his presidency, chancellorship. And you see them building, building, building each little piece until what happens in the end. And the book ends before the most terrible things happen. But you see it's building and building, and it's no one person's fault. It's everything that's happening. It's like another building up storm. It's not to say that we shouldn't do everything that we can to work for changing so that terrible storms like Galveston get, well, now they do get predicted in advance. But New Orleans didn't get predicted enough in advance and not enough measures got put in in advance. But to really uh, disabuse the mind of thinking that there's someone in control, things are just happening. Things are just happening, and there's a lot of good intentions out there. There's a lot of not good intentions out there, and then things keep happening that are the confluence of the good and the not good intentions. doesn't mean you can't do anything, but it means not to make people guilty. You know what I think it means? I wrote down two notes for myself after I was kind of, well, where should I start? Start with those books, start with the opera, start with How Are Things in the South of France, start with the Satipatthana Sutta. That's really what I want to get to. And I, the two things that as I was sitting the last two days thinking, okay, where do you want to start? Uh, I have um, CNN International on my TV in France. So I saw a news clip of um, a Boston Red Sox game 
a couple of weeks ago, and um, a young woman, probably 20, 21, very beautiful, went out to the pitcher's mound to throw out the first ball. Did you see that? Went out to the pitcher's mound to throw out the first ball. She was on crutches because she was missing a foot because her foot was blown off in the bombing at the end of the marathon. Young, beautiful woman without a foot. It's gone at the ankle, and she's going out on crutches. And she said, uh, they asked her, uh, you know, how, how come you're doing this? How can you be doing this? And she said, there's no point in dwelling in the past. And I thought, ah, how did she do that so fast? I mean, it's really quite true. There's no point in dwelling in the past. And it wasn't her fault. And it, it, you could say, well, it was the fault of the people who did it. But maybe it was the fault of their parents or the people who indoctrinated <laughs> them or whatever, or the police who didn't catch it or, you know, uh, whatever it is. And whoever could be, say, okay, it's this person's, that person. It doesn't do any good to say whose fault it was. It's the same foot that's missing. Um, and to be able to say it doesn't do any good to dwell in the past. And what I think about is, ah, how did she do that? That's remarkable. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And she's a dancer. One of the women that I know uh, on the in the group of people that goes to the opera all over the world, Beijing, Melbourne, lives here in Marin County. This was, the in terms of seeing ring cycles, which are all those four operas together, this was the 66th time she's seen a ring opera. She's the former president of the Bay Area, uh, you know, Marin County uh, Wagner Society, so not surprising. What's surprising is that she's 95 years old, and she's still going to Beijing and Melbourne by herself. Uh, and she actually is my great role model now, I keep thinking. And she knows that, too. You know, we've become really good friends. I keep saying, I want to grow up and be like you. Um, I asked her, though, recently, because it's a big topic of conversation in my life, getting older, and we have retreats now at Spirit Rock for mature people, older people. I can say older. (laughs) Mature people, older people. Um, I said, do you ever think about, or I, I guess there was a day of, uh, there was a day that all, there, there was a, a field trip on one of the days there was no opera. There was a field trip to Leipzig from Berlin. It's three hours in the bus that way and this way to see the Leipzig Opera House, which is a very famous opera house, and to have lunch there and to meet some singers and talk about Wagner who was <laughs> born there and uh, I didn't think ever I'd have my picture taken standing in front of the building that has a plaque and says this is the birthplace of Richard Wagner. But anyway, I am, and I was. And so, uh, But she didn't go on the bus trip. She said it's too hard. It's just too hard to go three hours on the... And it's on and off the bus, on and off the bus. And it was snowing anyway in, in April, so it was... So she said, no, I won't go. And we're talking about in general, as you get older, there are certain things that you used to be able to do that you can't do anymore. And they creep up on you, you know. You don't actually know about it 
until after you know about it. And then, isn't that true? Can you tell me things that you can't do? I can't walk down a fl- I can walk down a flight of stairs without holding the handrail, but not at ease. I feel much more at ease holding the handrail. What else can't you do? I can't ski Black Diamond Runs anymore. I never actually could. <laughs> I could ski, I could ski, uh, I could ski Blue Square Runs well, but never really the Black Diamond. Good for you. Uh, what else can't you do? I uh, used to be able to just not hike for a few weeks and then just go, boom, I can't just not hike for weeks and suddenly do an uphill for three miles at a billy goat pace. <laughs> Yeah. I cannot wear high heels anymore. Yeah. yeah, cannot wear high heels anymore. I said to Verna, I said, do you ever think about what you can't do anymore? And she was surprised. She looked at me, she said, never. I only think about what I still can do. So I think to myself, ah, how'd you do that? You know, she never heard of the Buddha. She, as far as I know, she doesn't meditate. <laughs> I get a I get a newsletter. Well, my husband gets newsletters that from from medical uh, from different medical associations, and this is this is from a newsletter that says mind, mood, and memory. I won't read you all of this, but I was interested in it because it says learn resilience to avoid the consequences of stress. Well, that's good. Uh, I like that. And then it says chronic stress can shrink your brain and increase your risk for physical and mental illness. Here's how to protect yourself. I think that's been now true, shown to be true, that chronic stress really not only makes you feel bad, but there are actually physiological changes. And you know that when you've been stressed for a while, your memory isn't good. Then it comes back, sometimes. (laughs) But the part of this that I wanted to show you really is that it says about what you should do to cope with this, to develop resistance. And it says, flexibility. Find new ways to respond, adapt, and change expectations in the face of challenges. For example, if meeting your social obligations is running you ragged, cut down on activities. Then you then you feel lonesome. Uh, social connected... Or even this one, focus optimism. Focus on what can be done rather than what can't. Entertain a hopeful view of the future. Emphasize any positive aspects of a stressful event. For example, view a setback as a learning experience. I want to say, that's a great idea. But how are you going to do it if you don't actually have already developed? If you had that capacity already, you would be doing it. Like somebody say that to you and you say, oh, wow, I never thought of that. Now I'm going to do that. That's not going to work, you know. They say, oh, I didn't think about thinking of something hopeful. If your mind is one that falls into the pits when bad things are happening, someone says, think about what's hopeful about this. You don't say, oh, good idea, I'll try to do that. If you could have, you would have. This is a silly article. (laughs) Face stressful situations without illusions. I love that. Respond to reality. Frankly, acknowledge your own characteristics, goals, and needs. Huh, that's another nice work if you can do it, you know. (laughs) I wasn't going to, I think I wasn't going to tell you this story, so this is the last story, and then we're going to do the sutta. But it's it's, it's like such a ridiculous 
story, but what was I was going to tell you? Wait, 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 wait. The Satipatthana Sutta, Satipatthana really means seeing clearly. That's what the word means. Uh, Vipassana means uh, seeing clearly. And the Satipatthana Sutta is the instructions for Vipassana meditation. Vipassana in Pali means seeing clearly. Many, which story should I tell you? Uh, oh, I think I told you this. Did I tell you this earlier? Or was I telling? Was I telling you? Maybe I was telling Joe in the car. I, I met a man in uh, in on the trip in Berlin. Man and his wife in their eighties. Lovely people, learned, interesting, charming. Uh, Helpful, courteous, sociable, everything. Lovely, nice people. Uh, educated, pleasant. <laughs> and then someone told me, and, and obviously there for all these ring operas one after another, also on the crew of people who do Beijing here, there, there. And uh, at some point someone said, oh yeah, about him, uh, Tom, let's call him Tom, that's not his name. Tom, he was a um, he uh, was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. He uh, successfully carried out 455 bombing missions in Vietnam, and he became a general. I'm thinking, wow, that's the same time that I was marching in the street uh, uh, against what was happening in Vietnam. And I don't, I still don't think that any war is a good thing and that war in general is, is a, a terrible mistake. But, and now I had the, you know, that kind of, uh, 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 shock in the mind where you now have a piece of information that doesn't fit the whole rest of your, uh, yeah. Your information in the mind that like a little earthquake. How am I going to now incorporate the fact that this Tom, thirty, forty years ago, fifty years ago, saw things differently and chose differently than I did? Saw things differently. That this Tom is a nice man, who at this point was a was a, someone that I enjoyed having as a friend. Am I now going to feel good about him or not good about him? Is that going to change? Me, because I know what he did a long time ago. And without even thinking about a value judgment, he was right, I was right, maybe he was right, no, I was always right. How could you ever have a war? That whole thing is so extra. If, if I think to myself, wow, that's interesting. Tom thought differently than I did 60 years ago. Uh, in Germany, people are very, very much affected by the fact of uh, of the Nazi era still. Young Germans are very, they bring it up in the conversation. Uh, if it, uh, if there's any some reason for them to discover or find out that I'm a Jew, they let you know how they feel about the fact that Germany systematically killed so many people. A whole lot more people than just Jews, but systematically. In the same place that there's a memorial for the Jews that were killed um, in that era of time, there's a memorial for um, gay people who were killed because they were gay, and gypsies, Romani, who were killed 
because they were Romani. And um, I, I always get tremendous goose flesh when I tell you. It's the only memorial, I've been to several memorials including the for the Jews, including the one in Washington, D.C. and the one in Jerusalem. The one in Berlin is the only one that doesn't say 6,000 Jews were killed. It says 6,000 Jews were murdered. It's a different... different Six million. Six million Jews were murdered. It's the only place that actually uses the, the German word for murder. It's, they're very serious about... And there's, every time I go... I went to that memorial two years ago and then again this time. And it's always full of school children groups that people are taking through and seeing the most terrible photos. But, you know, I look at these young Germans and I think this was their great-grandfathers or their grandfathers. is not them. You know, sometimes people say, you feel uncomfortable in Germany. Not at all. No, it was a... I am not mistake. I, I am not... It was what was happening that at that point. It was their grandfathers or their great uncles, and not happening now. Uh, how to have? Uh, how to have? Uh, I, I actually feel sometimes very sympathetic for them that they have to. Uh, they feel they have to sort of rise above that image of them. Do you ever have one of those experiences where someone tells you something? And you have to fit it into, like suppose we were all, I, I always think about that in uh, uh, the day after an election or something, where it, uh, here, say here at Spirit Rock, at the last uh, four, five years ago, six years ago, we were sort of unanimously excited about the election results. And uh, I don't know that there weren't one or two or ten people in that room who didn't vote the way I did who sat quietly and didn't say anything about it because being a Buddhist doesn't require being a Democrat, you know? It means I'm really getting it that uh, being, um, that feeling, uh, uh, the tension in the mind, the tension in the mind from being unable, the imperative in the mind, that's a better word, the imperative in the mind to be able to say, that's how it is. This is how it is. I wish it were other. From something extremely grave to something completely trivial. The mind intention is the mind that's uncomfortable. Here's a completely trivial story. The other day, I went to the gas station to get put some gas in my car. And um, I put my credit card in, to, you know, how you put the credit card in, take it out. Probably took it out too fast because it said something about cannot read credit card. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out why, but in and out. And wasn't. So a man apparently was going by behind me, and he came over, young man. Uh, and he's helping me with, he's, I thought, how nice of this passerby to be helping me. Young, uh, didn't speak English very well, so I think, okay, he's a new immigrant. Very nice of him to be helping me out. He said, maybe you should use another card. I said, no, no, this is a good card. So we try to put it in again, and it comes out, and this time it works. Uh, so that, now I take out the nozzle. And he said, here, I'll help you do that. 
I think to myself, goodness, I look so old. Uh, I can put the gas in by myself. I look like I can't put the gas in by myself. He has this perfectly nice passerby, and now he's filling my gas tank. And so you see the end of this? What? What's the end of this? He works there. He works there. He works there. It wasn't a perfectly nice passerby. It was a perfectly nice gas station attendant who, who, seeing that I was having trouble with my car, it came out. It is my mind that is preoccupied with little old woman can, can't do her card right. You look like an idiot. What's the matter with you? That's my mind that's saying that in there. In the beginning of Joseph's book, now we get serious. By the by, the way, I came home. I told that to my family, and uh, uh, <laughs> I told that to my my son Peter. And I say, you know, uh, I I can see that I see things through the lens of I don't want to look like a helpless little old woman. And he said, you are a little old woman, <laughs> and you do look like that, but you're not helpless. You added that into the equation. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you need is you need someone to tell you you are a little woman that's the truth <laughs> uh, this is Joseph saying uh, Anagarika Manindra my first teacher he's, he, when, he, when he finished college with a, Joseph when he finished college with a degree in philosophy studying Spinoza mostly as his final thesis uh, he went to, he joined the Peace Corps and went to India and after the Peace Corps began looking around for a spiritual teacher and uh, he ended up in Bodh Gaya, a small village in northern India where Siddhartha Gautama had become the Buddha, the awakened one. Anagarika Munindra, my first teacher, had just returned from nine years in Burma and had begun teaching Vipassana or insight meditation. When I first arrived, he said something so simple and direct that I knew I had come to my spiritual home. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. As he explained the practice, I resonated with this direct looking at the nature of mind and body and how suffering is created and how we can be free. This simple, although not very, not so easy, practice of vipassana are all rooted in one important discourse of the Buddha, the Satipatthana Sutta. Ways of it means foundations of mindfulness. He said, but a better term is four ways of establishing mindfulness. In terms of awareness of the different aspects of experience, this slight shift of translation has important implications. It gives emphasis to the process of awareness itself. That's what he's talking about in this book, and all of it. And as I was reading it, I, my, experience, my experience in reading it, you start to read it, and it's not rapid reading. It goes a little slowly. But as I was reading it, I found that I was getting really inspired by it. Uh, it's been a while since I got inspired by an instruction book in Vipassana Meditation. Uh, it's not instructions that I don't know, but there's something about his tone um, that's so dedicated and so devoted, and, and in fact, the the first uh, 
the first section of the first chapter is called ardency. And you don't use the word ardent very much in English anymore. It's not a it's not a word that we use in daily conversation. What do you think of when you think of ardent? Where would you find that? Yeah, in a yeah, in a in in a nineteenth century romantic poetry, the ardent suitor, you know. Um, but it, it it has it's very inspiring to me. I, I would like to think of my practice as ardent. I ardently want something to happen. So I think, what do I ardently want to happen? What do we all want ardently to happen? I would like my mind to actually be able to see clearly. I'd like to see, actually, that a nice person shows up to help me <laughs> manage manage to put gas in my car and kind enough to hold the fill the gas tank for me. Why not? Somebody comes in in the days of gas station attendants, you know, they always came out and put in the gas. That was nice. Now it becomes not nice because it's a sign that I can't put in my own gas if I make it that. If I make it that this person is just a person, whether he's a person who just passed me by here or he's the gas station attendant, it's a lovely thing for somebody to put the gas in the car for you. If I could say thank you very much without thinking all my what my friend uh, um, Sharon Salzberg calls add-ons. Those are add-ons, Sylvia. Oh, what Peter said, you know, helpless little old woman, he said. That's extra, the helpless <laughs> little old woman, yeah. <laughs> but if, and if that were just a fact for me, not a fact that brought up, uh, this is a youth-oriented culture, little old women who looks at them, who thinks about them, they're helpless. You know, those are all extra add-ons. Um, so I'd like to see clearly. I'd like to be able to see what's happening all the time. Not really just what's happening, but what's happening uh, in the in the sutta as in in weeks to come. I'll read you parts of it. Uh, it says uh, the practitioner uh, notices ardently, becomes ardently uh, attentive to events external and internal. The external events are what happens. So here I am, putting gas, a little trouble here. Internally, here's the thing, aha, he thinks this, I feel that, I feel that, about that, he thinks that. The whole world, I begin to feel, uh, years ago, and really years ago, when uh, people began to talk in, so to speak, spiritual terms, people would say things like, we, we construct our own reality. And I think, well, that's nonsense. I can't construct my own reality. I mean... I, however much I can construct that the sun is going to rise in the west, it's going to rise in the east. I don't run the world. But I actually, I construct my reality. Is a fact. I construct my reality because I see it through the lens of all of the ideas that I have in there, that I've put in there, that I've put in there, that the culture has put in there. Well, I'm just going to finish this one sentence. The other day, I was... <laughs> Where was I? I was I'm sitting on the exercise bike in the gym. And I started to laugh out loud because they had an ad for some kind of a face cream that you put. And the voiceover said, uh, don't let your neck give away your age. 
<laughs> and I started to laugh. First of all, I actually know I could smear that face cream from Nazal Kingdom Cup. <laughs> my neck is going to be the same. <laughs> but the bigger question is, why shouldn't I let it show my... I mean, why shouldn't I have a sign, 76, there, you know, and, 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 and counting. Uh, but all those cues, subtle and not so subtle from... From the, from the society that, that's, that said, that, those kind of cues are partly what causes my mind when this perfectly nice gas station attendant comes out to help me with the gas to think, ah, <laughs> what are we going to say, Susan? I'm saying that we shouldn't be asking what we can't do now that we did when we were younger. We should be asking what are we doing now that we couldn't do when we were younger. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I'm learning stuff on the computer. I mean, I could, couldn't have done any of this stuff when I was younger. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a good question. To ask. I think that's a, that's just, and it's right now. What can I do now? Yeah. Uh, not what did I used to do? Yeah. I sometimes think, well, you know, right now I can go to my grandchild's graduation. I went to my grandchild's graduation from Berkeley last Friday. And I was thinking about, you have to be old to go to your grandchild's <laughs> graduation from Berkeley. I also thought the thing that I always think, how many people went to a graduation? in the last couple of weeks. I always think, I love it, when I don't like it when they don't play pomp and circumstance <laughs> because that's like the, you know, I still like the wedding march, but anyway. Uh, so they play pomp and circumstance and here come in these people. And of course, when you're looking around, you're looking, they all come in and it's hard to distinguish who's who because they all have, they're far away and they have black gowns and hats and, and you're looking for your person. So first of all, it's an amazing thing because if you look, you can see your person all of a sudden. So the people around me, all of the, who were all my relatives, you know, everybody's looking and saying, there she is, you know, because everybody sees it at the same time. But what I always think about at graduation, so just in recent years, I don't know if I did it before, is here come all these people, beautiful, and they completed this big job, whether it's 8th grade or 12th grade or 16th grade, whatever it is, they completed it. And I look at all the people who are sitting there watching them, and they're all looking for their person, just as I'm watching for my person. And I'm thinking, if someone could magically calculate the numbers of 2.30 in the morning trips to the emergency room that these people here collectively made, so that these people could be walking in now. And the numbers of violin lessons and ballet classes and Cub Scout meetings that they drove to and the variety of zillions of other things made the braids, washed the clothing, changed the, gave the vitamins that everybody in that room, everybody should stand up and march up and get a diploma. <laughs> Nobody did that by themselves. It's just the same as looking around and saying, nobody caused the destruction of the hurricane and no one single person caused the Holocaust. None of those graduates did it by themselves. They did it with everybody in that room, with everybody's parents, with all their culture and their family and their community and their church groups and their friends. Everybody should stand up and get a diploma on, on, on that kind of an occasion. I think to myself, it's a miracle, you know. A lot of children who were born with these people aren't in this world anymore. Their parents also had dreams. You know, think about that. I don't know, maybe it's a thing that only old people think about. Maybe I didn't think about that when I was young, but think about it now. 
Because I'm glad for that, because I always feel good. I feel excited by that. You know, when I think about all of those things, the phrase from the Buddha that comes in my mind is, for anything to have happened, whether it's the graduation from Berkeley or the Galveston calamity, they have to be the necessary and sufficient conditions. That's the word of the Buddha, that um, a causation and interconnectedness and the necessary and sufficient conditions need to have been met for this to have happened. And the Buddha said that karma, which is the necessary and sufficient conditions, he said karma is one of the imponderables. How can you know? Somebody wasn't at their weather post in Cuba to forward the information along. How could you know that this is going to affect somebody thousands of miles away who just happened to be home that weekend or somebody else who didn't happen to be home that weekend? Somebody who made it on time to the World Trade Center and someone who was stuck in a taxi cab and wasn't there. You don't know. The zillions of circumstances. And for, for each of them, for me to learn in each moment that I can, this is what I'd like to do with the clear scene. I would like to be able to see that everything is um, just exactly as it can be. It, 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 everything is like it is because it couldn't be other. You know, we've talked a lot, we, I have talked a lot, we've talked a lot together about the, the, the best answer to, well, this isn't from me either, it's from Gwen years ago, who said the best answer to how are you is I couldn't be better. Because I couldn't, uh, ever be better. Even when I'm grumpy or horrible or short-tempered or feisty or, um, critical or, I could, if I could be better, I would. That uh, It doesn't mean I'm on the top of everything. If I remember that about myself, I'm much... I'm, uh, I'm more compassionate with myself when I am anything disagreeable. That doesn't mean I say, oh, good, I'll just be as disagreeable as ever. You know, that it does, it's, it's not at all that. It's that the disagreeable is bad enough if I'm grumpy and feisty and... Pretty soon I'm going to get over it. And sooner if I realize this is very uncomfortable. You know, uh, what can I do here? This is an unpleasant. This is what the Buddha would have called an unwholesome state. What can I do now? I don't have to make the unwholesome state more unwholesome by being mad at myself about it. Say, whoa, sweetheart, you're really in pain here. Let's do something to fix this. Let's change it. And that only comes out of compassion, which only comes out of wisdom. I couldn't be better. Nobody could be better. There's no point in being mad at people. No point in being mad at myself. It's, it's not that complicated, but it's, I, you know, <laughs> I think all the time about, uh, I wrote a book once, the first book I wrote, and the title of the book is It's Easier Than You Think. And I actually think it's harder than you can imagine. And, and, the, and the, really what's true is that's the, that's the only line in the book that I personally did not write. I had five other titles for it, of which I don't even remember what they were now. Oh, I do. I remember one of them was I changed my mind. 
which I thought was very clever. Don't you like that? I thought that was so clever. But the marketing department said no one's going to know what this is about. And, uh, you know, what's easier than you think? But they said we want to call it, uh, it's easier than you think, the Buddha's path to happiness. Uh, the Buddha's path to happiness. And because I was young and so happy to have somebody publish a book, and what did I know that you could protest? And it sold a lot of copies because they told me the word easy is very good. Um, <laughs> right up there with safe. Um, but it's not easy. It's easier than you think to understand. It doesn't do me any good for that young woman to say, there's no use dwelling in the past. There is no use dwelling in the past. But it's not that easy to stop dwelling in the past. It has a way of grabbing you. All those adages, no use crying over spilt milk, there isn't. But it's spilt already, but we cry. You know, the thing is that it's hard for human beings. No use, there's no point in worrying. My friend Alta used to say to me, no point in worrying, Sylvia. You know, you do the best you can, and however it is, it turns out. You tell that to a worrying person, it's insulting. There is no point in worrying. It doesn't do any good for anybody. But if your mind is a kind of a mind that recycles worry, then it just does. And then you have to think, whoa, oh, sweetheart, your mind recycles worry. Look what it's doing, making things hard for yourself. Let's really try to relax a little bit. That's my, you're just your habit of mind. I'm really thinking that, so the, just to bring it together, because it's already 11, uh, I thought to myself, I've been, since I've been thinking all these thoughts, I'm completely agreeable uh, with, you know, you can't, you can't do anything about what happened, but that this, the, the final thing that convinced me to work on the, on the sutta more seriously is when it said cultivate these, cultivate acceptance, learn to live with uncertainty, Rather than resisting change, try to understand the inevitable. Uh, acknowledge when your activities cannot affect the situation or make, and then make the best of it and move on. Say, good luck. I'd like to do that. But I actually think that's what the promise of the Buddha is. And that's what the promise of the Satipatthana Sutta is. And that the key to it is mind training. Mind, tra- mind discipline that leads to unshakable wisdom. I have plenty of wisdom that comes but gets shaken. So I want the unshakable wisdom. So I thought we'd practice that for a while this summer, if that's all right with you. Is that all right with you? Good. (laughs) Then (laughs) I didn't take a poll, you'll see. Uh, So anyway, may all beings who have been here and not here take their highest aspirations for a mind that remembers to see clearly And in the seeing, behave always with kindness. May it be ours to take into the world and share with everybody that we meet. May all beings be peaceful and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.